Uh, well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Uh, I am blessed to be able to be back. I actually, I was here last Sunday, though Kevin was teaching. It was a good word. If you missed out, I encourage you to go check it out online or the podcast uh, through Apple um, and or our live stream, the archive there. Like Kevin did a great job. It was real personal and uh, just real impactful. So uh, thank you. Many of you guys know my family and I were traveling. Uh, our kids got to be with us for a little bit. Uh, they left us a week into our trip, came back here, and me and Christy continued. And thank you for praying for us. We didn't kill each other along the way. I always thought, like, there was no way. If you ever seen the Amazing Survivor, Amazing, Amazing Race uh, show, I thought me and Christy would not do that show well. But God was good. Uh, we were gone eight weeks. That's the longest we've ever been gone. Uh, we've been here 22 years serving the Lord. That was the longest we've ever been gone. It was long. Uh, it was busy, but it was a good busy. Uh, we got to see many of our form, many of the former Calvary Okinawa families. I think in total, I was tripping out. I think 64 different families we went and saw. Crazy, right? So if you've been around for a while, you guys have heard me say like, you never really get rid of us. We're like toe fungus. We just show back up all of a sudden. Uh, I can't think of a better analogy yet, so you can help me figure out one. But. Um, but we were gone for a while, and uh, Chris is like, maybe this feels like what deployment feels like. I'm like, mm, Tom Brady deployment, <laughs> Tom Brady version. Um, you know, we're seeing people, sleeping in beds, eating well, and uh, got to experience Bucky's uh, firsthand. So, yeah. And an Aldi's and a Wegman's. Amazing. If you've been in those places, you, you know. So, uh, 10 different states, 64 different families. And not even including my own family and Christy's family, we saw them as well. And I brought back two souvenirs. Uh, the Brust family is one of the souvenirs we brought back. So uh, we got to stay with them in Virginia. They were here with us a season ago, left, so they're visiting. So welcome to the Brust. And the Morales family we brought back as permanent souvenirs. And so Ricardo and Melissa, hey, and pray for them. They're coming back as missionaries. We have their visa paperwork in, and so we're praying that God will... Uh, bless these guys, and they're going to be coming on and joining us here. So we're really excited. Um, but anyways, it's good to be back. Uh, 102 tacos, I think, was the count, and <laughs> it, around there. <laughs> All right, what's going on? Uh, hey, you guys were busy here too. We had six babies born uh, in the time that we were away. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, but with that, real quick, I want to make a plug. Our MANA ministry, which is the ministry that helps provide meals for our families, not just families that had babies, but if in the hospital or maybe you just need a little extra help, you know, someone's deployed or whatever, that ministry has shrunk down because of the PCS season. And so if that's something you think, yeah, I think I can make a meal once in a while and be a blessing, on the back of your seat, there's, there should be a little card that has a QR code. Uh, scan that. There's a way to sign up, and uh, that would be a huge, a really simple but very impactful way to bless another family in our church, especially this last season we've had uh, a number of babies born, okay? Uh, the eight weeks that I was away, by the way, I, uh, it wasn't all fun. I, well, it was all fun. I shouldn't say it that way. It wasn't all play. Um, I got to teach four different times, so twice in Cali at different churches, Calvary Fredericksburg one time, and then Calvary in San Antonio. Uh, we got to do a baptism in the backyard. That was awesome. Um, so uh, anyways, the, the Lord was good. It was all amazing, but I'd say this. There's no place like Oki, and there's no place like Calvary Chapel Oki now, so I'm happy to be back. There is one bad thing about life here, though. Uh, not counting mold, uh, <laughs> not counting flying cockroaches, um, and not even counting, they, they still haven't gotten, you know, good Mexican food here yet. But the one bad thing is, uh, is PCS season. It's good in that it brings a lot of people, but it's bad in that we have to say uh, sayonara to, you know, some very beloved folks. So life rhythms in Okinawa in the summer are cicadas, typhoons, and PCS. And so today we're going to say uh, see you later because we're going to pray them back to the Lewis family. Um, so Jesse, Jen, we love you guys. Thank you for making a home with us. Happy anniversary too, by the way, right? Five years for you guys. Congratulations. Um, if they owe you money, today's the last day to make sure that... 
they leave Wednesday. But we just, we just want to affirm our love for you and say thank you. We'll pray for you um, as well um, when we pray this morning. So we're in 1 Peter. We're back in 1 Peter. Grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. These guys would be happy to let you borrow one if you need. I'm going to pick up where Pastor Alex left off. Most of you guys know, right? We're just making our way through 1 Peter in this series called Sojourn. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to start 2 Peter, by the way. So, you know, for us as a church, we just go systematically. What that means is we, we're going through the Bible book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so that's how we're kind of rolling through the scriptures. And so we find ourselves here at this um, interesting portion of scripture. I would say that Peter is going to talk about a subject matter that he doesn't really develop. He doesn't give us the theology of spiritual warfare. He doesn't give us any doctrinal points. He just kind of states the fact that we have an enemy. It's the devil, and he wants to destroy us, and he kind of moves on from there. So we're going to take it as it is, unpack it a little bit, but this is where we find ourselves this morning. So I entitled our message this uh, for our study, Battle Ready. Um, we didn't get a chance to have communion last Sunday, so uh, I, I'm going to try to land this plane early so that we can have communion together as well. But with that, First um, Peter chapter 5, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I'll just do this. Let me, I'll just read um, verse 8 and 9. We'll pause there. We'll unpack the other two verses, but we'll just read that and pray. And we'll pray for the Lewis family. Peter writes, be sober. Your translation might say, be self-controlled, be watchful, be vigilant. And then he tells us why. Because we have an enemy, your adversary, the devil. He likens him to a, a roaring lion. Interesting picture. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter adds, to the imperatives, to the directives of be sober, be vigilant, he says, resist him. Steadfast in the faith. And we can know that we're not by ourselves. This isn't unique. Knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by our brotherhood in the world. All right, we're going to pause there. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the morning, a beautiful day like today that you've given us here in a beautiful island with beautiful people. Lord, grateful for your grace, your goodness, your mercies, and, and how they're displayed and how we get to experience them in uh, very different ways. Lord, one of those ways is through relationships. And for us, we have said over the years how it's relationships that are our treasure. It's the currency of our faith. It's the one thing that we get to bring with us to heaven as we make them in you. And so, Lord, we're grateful for relationships that we have, like with the Lewis family. Lord, we love them. We're so blessed for them and by them. We're going to miss them big time, but we trust, God, that their next duty station, their next season, that you'll be there and that you're going to use them, that whatever church they find themselves in next, that they're going to be the recipients of all the good things that the Lewis family brings. Lord, you'll provide for them in every way. And Lord, also you'll backfill the, the space that they leave for others to step in and to serve. And so, Lord, we commit them to you this morning. And Father, we commit our time of study to you as well. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. It'll be more than just an exercise of academics, but Lord, that it would be an encouragement of the spirit, of our soul, and that you change us from the inside out. And so we give you this time now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, would you take a moment? We have a number of visitors, so introduce yourself to at least two people. Oh, forgive me. I, I wanted to say thank you, just a special thank you to our staff uh, for covering down while it's gone, and then James for teaching, and Rob, and Brett, and Wayne. Um, Oh, you remember that old show, Romper Room? I see. Anyways, I don't know that came to my brain. Um, I just want to say thank you to those guys. They, um, they blessed us, enabled for me and Christy and our family to be able to go. So thank you, uh, you guys. All right. 
Hey, we're back in First Peter. We haven't been here in a little bit. Um, our series titled Sojourn is really taken from the first chapter. It's, it's one of the major themes that Peter develops as he writes this letter to a, a group of Christians um, living in the first century. And unlike some of the other New Testament letters that we read, especially that Paul writes, it's not necessarily to just one particular city or region. You remember, he's, he's writing to a group that have been scattered abroad. They're, they're, today, it's modern-day Turkey. It's parts of Asia Minor, which is Europe and the Middle East. And so they're, they're believers that have been scattered abroad. And he calls them pilgrims. He calls them exiles. Um, and sojourners. And so this is the, the audience that he's writing to. Peter is the author, of course. And the, and, the, and the reason why he's writing to them is that they have been, because of their faith in Christ, experiencing some hard stuff. It's been some rough roads, some hard hits, just because they're Christians. And so they're suffering, they're experiencing persecution. Uh, it's the modern day or their version of being canceled cultured and being cast out, and it's just been a rough go. And so he writes to them to encourage them, to lift them up and to help equip them for this life. Because even though they're God's kids, and he reminds them of the fact of their salvation, of their sanctification, that God loved them, that God picked them, that God elected them, they belong to the Lord, but just because they and just because we have that identity, it doesn't mean automatically we get a card that says, now there's no more trouble in your life. And so he wants to equip them for that, to let them know, listen, uh, yes, you're going to get some knocks and some bumps. There's turbulence on this ride, but God's promised you're going to get to the destination. And God has promised that along the way, though it's hard at times, he's going to be with you. And guess what? God's going to use those things to help to develop our faith, to you know, develop our faith muscles so that this very precious thing called our belief in Jesus Christ, our faith in Christ, which is more precious than gold, precious, more, you know, worth more than Bitcoin and whatever else, that uh, it's going to be refined because that's really what, value, what matters most and what has the greatest value. So he writes to comfort them. He writes to console them. And these are important truths. As we impact them along the way, important for them and important for us. We get now to the end of his letter. Here in chapter 5, it's seven verses that were left. And basically, there's two parts to it. The first part, which we're looking at today, is he kind of has this last exhortation. He has this last thing. He's like, hey, make sure you don't forget this. And then the very last part of the, the, the chapter is he has some shout-outs to some people. He acknowledges some places, which we'll look at next week. For our time this morning, Peter reminds us of a, an important spiritual reality, but he gives us some handles of practical things that we can do, and he gives us three of them, three directives or three imperatives. There's three verbs here, things for us to do so that we can be battle ready, not just survive, but that we would thrive in our Christian walk. And so my, my prayer as always is you be encouraged today and edified in your faith and, uh, and, and just equipped for what God has for you. All right? Verse 8. We'll unpack these things. He says, be sober. And then he says, be vigilant. And then he tells us why. Pause right there. Right off the bat, we jump into this chapter mid-thought Immediately we read these two directives that Peter lays out for us, these two actions, be sober, be vigilant. Now, he's going to tell us the reason why. Why is he exhorting us to do these things? But before we get there, let's just remember greater context of chapter 5 specifically. Chapter 5 began with a charge to the church and specifically to the church leaders. Remember, Peter says, 
to the elders, to the shepherds, to the pastors, the, you know, the leadership of the church. I, too, as a fellow elder, I'm going to exhort you to do these things. And so there's a charge to that particular group and a very sobering one, uh, an important one, that reminds us of the importance that spiritual leaders have from God, the expectation that they have a right attitude, they have integrity, and that they're going to have humility in the way that they love and lead God's flock. And hopefully the big takeaway, one of the big takeaways that you got from what Alex shared two weeks ago was that this church, our church, these churches belong to Jesus. Jesus is our senior pastor, if you will. Right? He is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd who gave his life for you and for me. He purchased us. He's the head of the church, the Bible says. All things were created for him and by him and to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And so Jesus, uh, we belong to the Lord. That's what uh, Peter wants to remind us of. And then our relationships in the Lord are all tied to this fact. And that God then has designed us as a church, this ragtag, you know, very different group of people as we've gathered, that were defined then by God, designed by God to be, and he uses one descriptor as a body. Jesus is the head of this body. Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthian church says, we're one body, but we're, we're, we're different members of it. And in that, we have a different role. We have a different place. We have a different function. He's going to tell the Corinthian church. He'll tell the Ephesian church. Then when all of us do our part, guess what? We all get to grow up together. And that's how God's designed us. You have a part, and I have a part, and our parts aren't necessarily the same. Paul also says one part can't say to the other part, well, that person's more important than you, or that person's not needed. He says, nope, all of us are needed. But we're all, it's different, though. Our function's going to look different. And part of that is that we're all then called to serve one another, right? We're all called to serve the Lord. We're all called to serve each other. Both Peter and Paul agree that we're all called to serve each other in humility, to be in submission one to another, Peter reminds us that we all have the same access to Jesus that everybody else does. He's called himself, he's called you to himself first and foremost. And because of that, we can cast our cares to him. He cares for us. Um, the writer Hebrews says that we have full access anytime. We can go boldly into his throne room of grace for all the mercy and help that we need anytime. And, and so these are good things for us to remember. Why? Because there are times in our life, even though we're God's kids, we're going to go through some difficulties and challenges, and we're going to, we're going to um, be tempted to think that God doesn't care, or God's not powerful, or God's not real, or God's absentee, or the people around me don't care because of the things that we're going through. And we're going to go through these circumstances. You're going to think, well, I can't go another day. This is too rough. And it's Peter that comes in and says, listen, no, God's got you. He's given you everything that you need. You have his spirit, you have his word, and you have the church. And when we then appropriate those things, like we will do well, we can thrive. And so God has set us up with all of these blessings that he's given us, but Peter now adds, we have our own individual responsibility. We have all those things. We have the Lord, we have the Spirit, we have each other, we have the Word, but we have to take some personal responsibility too. There are postures and positions that we need to practice, that God prescribes. Adopt this appropriate this, adhere to this, and that's what Peter leads with here in verse 8. What are those things that you and I need to do for ourselves? Be sober and be vigilant. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter's told us this. So in many ways, our study this morning is review, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, to be sober. He's told us that at the beginning of his letter. Back in chapter 1, he told us to gird up the loin, to gird up the sorry, the loins of our mind, 
Be sober. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ Jesus. So that's back in chapter 1, verse 13. He told us in chapter 4 as well, verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. And so, therefore, we have to be sober. We have to be watchful in prayer, specifically in that, in that way. And so the emphasis of this word, this directive that we're given to be sober, as your Bible might translate it, be self-controlled, it's the idea of, of thinking rationally, that we're not flying off the handle, that not, we're not just having a gut reaction to things that come our way. But it's a, it's a sanctified self-control. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, peace, kindness. One of those aspects is also self-control. And so that if we're walking in the Lord and we're walking with the Spirit, then God will help enable us so that we don't hit the panic button, so we're not freaking out, that we're not getting triggered by things, so that we can think critically, and I would add this, to think biblically about the stuff that comes our way. And it's an expectation that God has for us. There is, if you will, a, a spiritual sobriety that God expects of you and me in our walk with the Lord. And then what does that mean? What does that look like practically for us? I'll give you one arena. I don't know if you would agree with me, but it seems to me that uh, one of the messages that the culture around us is trying to promote is that we should just live by our emotions. Just live by our feelings. Follow your heart. Do what pleases you. You do you. To the, to the extent of don't care about the consequences. Don't worry about what, you know, the repercussions of you do you and what pleases you. And so the world around us is promoting this idea that your feelings and your emotions are king. And because they're king, then you can justify anything that you do and it can be the motive for anything that you want to do regardless of consequence. And so, well, I felt like it, or it just feels good, becomes the benchmark then of our morality as a society. And we find people living in that lane and making all kinds of terrible and foolish decisions. You know, doing what's right in your own sight is the cycle of sin that began in the book of Judges. That, that's the phrase that repeats over and over again. And the people did what was right in their own sight. And all of a sudden, they begin this downward spiral. They call out to God. God in his grace saves them. They come back up. Life is good. They begin to do what was right in their own sight. And then round and round they go. And so what does it mean then to, uh, to be sober? Let me just expand this a little bit. To be sober for us in this context, I think it means to have a biblical filter of our thought life. The things that come our way, the messages that come our way, that we're running it through the scripture, that we're running it through, what, what does God say about that particular idea or thought? Does it line up with the word of God? You know, we, we want to be those that think biblically and act biblically. Because right? What we think is what we do, right? What you believe will dictate your behavior. And so if we believe that the Bible is true, and we believe that wisdom is found in Scripture, that we believe that it begins with the fear, knowledge begins with the fear of God, then we're going to act that way, and we'll respond that way. And there's a lot to say about our thought life. We talked a lot about this, I think, back in chapter 1. The Bible says that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. What does that mean? The idea that we're to, where's that thought come from and is that in line with what God wants us to do? Or is that just my flesh? Is that just my feeling? Is that just my anger? Is that just my frustration? Is that just my boredom? Or is that just me giving you know, into temptation? 
Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest and just and lovely, of good report, of virtue, of, uh, uh, you know, of, of uh, praise, we're to think on these things. I paraphrase, he says, we get our mind out of the gutter and think about things above. You're the phrase, right? Garbage in, garbage out. You know, that's true of our thought life. That's true of the things that we expose ourselves to. And, and a lot of it nowadays, right? It's easy because of social media and the devices we carry around in our pockets. And so we don't want our minds to... Uh, you know, to run into the gutter, and we don't want our minds to be overrun with worry either. The Bible has a lot to say about our anxiety, and God knows that we can get worried, and so he tells us, hey, don't be worried, and don't be anxious. And in fact, he says, hey, I'll exchange, you give me your anxiousness, and you give me your worry. It's the, it's the greatest return policy, exchange policy. We come to the Lord with that, we give him that, and the Bible says in exchange, right, when we come with thanksgiving, that he gives you a peace that surpasses understanding. It guards your mind and it guards your heart. The goodness of the Lord in that way. So that, that's soberness. What, what does to be vigilant mean? To be watchful. What means to be alert? It means to be on guard. It means to be mindful of our surroundings. It, it carries, the, the original Greek word carries the idea that you we're anticipating a hazard that's coming our way. We're anticipating someone throwing a punch, or, and so we're on the defensive, we're on the ready. A good part of our time in the States, Christian and I, and the kids were with us for a little bit of that, was that we were driving, you know, we're just driving all these different roads. And so I had to be very vigilant. Even when we first landed, you guys know how it is, right? When you come this way and like, Okay, what side's the windshield wiper and what side's the turn signal, right? I mean, just that. And then you're like, make sure I stay on the, the right side of the road or the left side of the road, depending on where we are. Now, these places that we went, and I've been in Virginia before, but I've never been to Texas. I've never been to Oklahoma, uh, North Carolina. And so we have to be very vigilant. The cars there are bigger. There's no yellow, there's no little, uh, you know, K trucks, right? They're the opposite, They're like monster trucks in the States. And so the roads were brand new, and so driving, everyone's driving fast and furious. I have to say, Texas drivers are crazy. <laughs> I thought SoCal was crazy. I'm like, ooh. But maybe it's all the SoCal people moving to Texas. Anyways. And here's, here's the advice I was given. Uh, it was so funny. I thought everywhere we went, it was always ends in a five. So avoid the 95 at all costs. That's what I was told, right? And then the 35, then the 65, and then the I-5. Right? Like, just avoid those places. We had to be very vigilant in our driving. And there'd be times where <laughs> I, I learned what a frontage road is. You know, just, <laughs> I mean, if you don't take the right exit, right, you're just going in this big circle, like, like Grand Prix. Uh, me and Christy had a lot of great discussions <laughs> developed our marriage Peter exhorts us to the same mindset be watchful be pay attention and so what does that mean for us well our Christian walk we're to, we're to walk with this if I can say it this way uh, like a spiritual situational awareness that we're not asleep at the wheel you know it's be sober, be awake. It's just as dangerous to be asleep at the wheel as it is to be intoxicated at the wheel, right? And, and to be distracted, especially if you're in a precarious place. Like if you're not paying attention to who's in the lane next to you, the rate of travel, who's walking across the street, those kind of things, like it, it could be pretty disastrous. Right? It can be pretty dangerous for other people and for yourself. And, and the same is true spiritually. There's a mindfulness that God wants us to have. That we're mindful then about where we're going and what we're exposing ourselves to. What, what movies are coming into our living room? What music are we and our kids listening to? Um, 
the things we're clicking on on the internet. The messaging, the ideologies that are just circling around us, what our kids are getting at school. Like, like these are things that God says, listen, we need to be aware. Don't be asleep. Don't, don't be lazy and don't be lackadaisical. We've got to walk circumspectly, Paul would phrase it, because there's a lot of pitfalls. And so I'd add that if sobriety conveys the idea of what's going on in our head or filtering it, that vigilance is the idea of what's going around us so that we don't step into it. We don't mistakenly drift into those things. And so it is an exercise to be vigilant. Why? Why? Why do we got to be these things, Peter? And he just tells us plainly. Now, Peter doesn't develop a theology with it. Peter doesn't give us doctrine behind it. And our time this morning doesn't permit me to, to you know, dig into all of these the aspects of this idea. What, what do we find when Peter gives us the reason? Why do we need to do these directives? Why are these disciplines important? It's because if you name the name of Christ, guess what? You have an enemy. He just tells us plainly, we have an adversary, and he identifies him. It's the devil, and he's on the prowl. He's not passive. He's very active. And so we have, if you will, an enemy who's hell-bent on your demise. And this one part of this verse has a lot going on. I was tempted just to park here for our, our Sunday and unpack all of it, but Listen, let me just go through it quickly. Here's what it reminds us of. There's a spiritual realm. The reality that there is a dimension that we can't see with our physical eye, and yet it manifests in our life in different ways. But it's just as real. The angelic world and the spiritual world is a real world. And the devil is real. It's not allegorical. Heaven is a real place and hell is a real place. And we have this enemy who is real. And Paul pulls back the curtain for us and he, when he writes to the Ephesians and he says, when we fight, we don't wrestle against the things that we see. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Yes, you know, we can get into some stuff with our loved ones and family and the neighbor and the coworker and, you know, and the person on the, um, the Facebook group. But ultimately, what's behind all of that? It's spiritual. And so Peter, or Paul tells us, that's not who we're fighting against. That's not the enemy. You might have a disagreement with your spouse today, but the, she or he's not your enemy. Your kid's not your enemy. The brother and sister sitting next to you, we, we're not the, he's not the, the enemy. But we wrestle against rulers and authorities and powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's the spiritual curtain that Paul pulls back for us, and we get to see a spiritual reality. Now, again, Peter just brings us to it, and he reminds us there's a spiritual reality, and part of that spiritual reality is, guess what? We're in a spiritual battle. Peter reminds us we are spiritual combatants. I think it was um, Billy Graham who said, the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. And so here Peter identifies that we're spiritual combatants, and here's our enemy. It's the devil. Now, by the way, we actually have two other adversaries that we entangle and grapple with. One of the other of our enemies, if you will, is just our own self. It's our old nature. Remember Paul writes to the Romans, and he, and he explains something that's going on. He says, I see this war within me. My old nature and my new nature, and they are battling. And so we battle against our old nature, right? Our flesh, our temptations, that inner voice sometimes that says, ah, it's okay, God will forgive you. So we wrestle against our old nature. We, and then we also, in a sense, battle against a world system that's anti-Christ and it's anti-Bible and it's anti-Scripture. And so here Peter makes the point for us. We are spiritual combatants. And Peter knows this well himself, right? I mean, Peter, Peter is a combat veteran. 
I mean, he's one of those guys that's walking around with a hat and has all the pins. He's an OG of spiritual warfare. Remember one time, Jesus says to Peter, I think it's at the end of Luke, Peter, the devil has called you by name and he wants to sift you like wheat. That would be scary, right? Can you imagine? Paul, right? Josh, the, the, the devil's called you by name. He's got your phone number. And, and if I'm Peter, I'd be like, well, you told him, like, take a hike, right? You told him, like, get out, Jack, right? What does, what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, after you've been beaten down, <laughs> after you've stumbled, after you've fallen, get up and go strengthen your brethren. And, I mean, that's what Peter's doing ultimately here, right? First Peter and Second Peter are part of that. And so Peter knows what he's talking about. The devil is real. Fallen angels are real. Demonic entities are real. They have power. They have influence. But the, total, the totality of the Bible tells us, listen, we don't have to fear them. There's a lot of scripture. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We are more than conquerors. Right? We're conquerors plus we have all of the equipment that we need. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. They are strong. We have the armor of God. And ultimately, we fight not for victory, but from victory, right? You go to the book of Revelation, guess what? We win. But there's still battles. And so Peter is reminding us, reminding his reader of this fact. And because we're in a battlefield, we don't... We can't then let our guard down. We have to be sober. We have to be vigilant. Because the devil would love nothing more than to trip you up. Do you realize that? The devil would love nothing more than to all of the D words. Discourage you, distract you, divide you, depress you, make you disenchanted or disgruntled. Like that's the devil's end game. And he will do what he can because he doesn't, he plays dirty. He doesn't care. He'll sucker punch you to get you and me to quit following Jesus, to sideline us. He wants to detach you from the things of God, and so he'll do what he can. And so Peter's letting us know, listen, we need to be mindful of this. We need to be aware of his tactics. We can be uh, self-control. We don't have to be given into our emotions and our feelings, and we can be watchful. We can pay attention to what's coming our way and where we're walking and what we're doing, and let's think biblically about these things, not get caught up in the emotion of things. As Paul would say, there are many who've suffered shipwreck in their faith. And I don't know about you, but I, I know people that have done that, right? They they got spun up, went adrift, and they've crashed in their casualties of the Christian faith. Too many. And, and, and I want to say this in love. I mean, part of me has this burden, and I want to make sure for us as a church family that we're being equipped well. Because the battle is real. And when you open your social media and your kids go to school and you step into the workplace, guess what? It's on. We're exposed to all of these things. But we don't walk in fear. We don't have to be timid. We don't have to create little communes and just live by ourselves. Right? We're still called to be light in this world. But what do we do? Well, he's given us two already. Right? We're to be sober we're to be vigilant, and what he tells us in verse 9, we're to resist. It's an active resistance. Resist him. Then he adds this, steadfast in the faith. And so it's the third proven battle tactic. Resist the devil. I think Paul writes, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's the way that we keep our ground. And that, and that word in the original Greek, it's the idea, I think I said it earlier, right? It's to, it's to have a, a firm stance. Like someone's going to push you into the pool. Or 
uh, when the typhoon comes and uh, and Family Mart's still open, so you want to go, and then you, you know, the, and the wind's pushing against you, like it's that kind of posture. You're not going to be blown over. It's working against you, but you're resisting it. And so that's the idea. It, it conveys the idea of footing and foundation. And that's important for us in our Christian walk. Like, What is our foundation built on? And then where are we standing? Because one of the things that we can make ourselves susceptible to the, the you know, to become a casualty of spiritual warfare is that we're not standing in the Lord. We got one foot in the Lord and we got one foot in the world. And that's a very precarious place to be standing. That's unstable. And so when you trip and you stumble and you fall and you crash, don't be surprised. Again, let me, let me un, kind of amplify the idea of resisting him steadfast in the faith. It's the idea that we're going to stand then firmly and where, I'm going to add this, on the truth of God's word. That, that needs to be our platform. And when we stand firmly on the word of God, that's what then enables us to resist the advances. Like so many things, it just comes back to that. It comes back to the word of God. How's your devotion life? Outside of a Sunday morning, I mean, are, are you, am I, are we taking time to read the word and spend time with the Lord? No condemnation. No guilt trips. Just a, a loving spur. If you've fallen off, you've slidden off, other things have taken that slot in your morning rhythms, then just come back to this. And so we resist him by standing firm on the word, but notice it also says steadfast in the faith. And I, and I think that's important. The idea of that, it's a military term. And so I'm going to speak your language, many of you. It's the idea that not only are we standing firm, but we're standing firm together. It, it conveys the idea of formation, of a battle line, that we've locked our shields together. And so together we're ready for whatever comes our way. Together we are fortified. Everyone's tight. We're, we're a solid, unified force. Right? There's strength in numbers. And so it conveys the idea that we do better when we are together. And again, that's how God's designed us. Now, I have friends, and you do too, right? They're like, ah, I, I can worship the Lord by myself, and I can do that in my own home, and I can do that in the mountain, and I can do that in the ocean. And Yes, you can. Certainly you can. But I'd add this, but you cheat yourself. You rob yourself out of a whole dynamic and blessing that God wants to give you, and I would even add that we need, because God's designed us to be in community. And so, yeah, you can go by yourself, but why? Listen, I get it. We're, we're a messy bunch. Right? There's drama sometimes, but that, that's where we get to experience God's grace, and we get to experience forgiveness, and we get to experience growth. But we also get to experience togetherness. Right? Two are better than one. When one falls down, there's another person to help lift each other up. I'm so grateful. One of the blessings that we've had over the years and then getting to see 64 different families is just reconnecting and picking up where we left off and realizing, man, the Lord's been doing such a great work in their lives. And how... It was such a blessing for me and Christy and my family in this season, and that was a blessing for them. And I, and, I, and I really believe that I wouldn't be where I am at today unless the Lord brought these relationships, you guys, into our lives. It makes us richer. It makes us better. Because the reality is we're going to be attacked. The reality is that we, we're going to face some stuff and sometimes we make mistakes and, you know, we'll stumble and we get sucker punched by circumstance and it's a phone call, it's a conversation. We get side swiped by sin and we get to rally and 
come alongside and love and support and encourage and do all the things that God's designed us to do. Sometimes we think, well, I'm the only one going through this. And, and this verse reminds us, no, you're not. You're not alone, and you don't have to be alone. In fact, that's what Peter says. Knowing that the same things are happening by your brotherhood in all of the world. It's something that we all get to experience. And there's actually comfort in that. Because there's no judgment in that. We all realize, oh man, we all suffer the same way. We're all in the same boat. We all struggle with our marriages. And we struggle with our, you know, trying to uh, raise toddlers and teens and then adults. Struggling like figure out our single life. Peter moves on, and I need to move on in, in verse 10. And he says, But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. What a beautiful reminder. God's called you by his grace. For by grace you and I have been saved. Not of ourselves, not of works. It's God's gift to you because he loves you, because of his great mercy. We were once in sin, dead in our trespasses. And yet the God of all grace called us, brought us into his family, this eternal glory. But notice after you've suffered a while. And I like that. I think Peter helps to put it in perspective. You can go through some hard things, some tough times. And Peter says, in the scope of eternity, as Paul would say, right, it is a momentary and light affliction. And it's working for you an eternal weight of glory. What does God do with that? Well, he perfects us. He establishes us. He strengthens us. He settles us. We go through hard times, it acts as a purifier. It purifies your motives. It purifies your values. We get to realize what's really important. God uses suffering as a means to, to draw us closer to Jesus. Our relationship with the Lord gets stronger. Our relationship with others gets deeper. And so here we're reminded that God is the God of all grace. So I'm going to say something that maybe it's a little challenging. If God is the God of all grace and we experience suffering and God has brought that into our life, that means then suffering is a form of God's grace. Suffering is a form of God's grace in your life. God God purposes it, intends it to be the thing that brings us closer to him. And that's often what happens, right? Suffering becomes the means in which you and I can experience Jesus in a greater way, in a deeper way, in a more intimate way. Like we know that in the natural, I think, right? The the people that I'm closest with aren't necessarily people that I'm just clowning with and having fun with. And I I love that, that kind of people in my life and I'm grateful for that kind of people in my life. But it's the people that... We've walked through some hard things together, people that we've cried, right? We've gone through some hardship. It, it, it tends to be those type of relationships that are stronger and more intimate. And it's the same thing that's true with our relationship with Christ. When we go through these hard things, it, it becomes a catalyst then for us to draw closer to the Lord, and we get to see Jesus in a new way and experience him in a fresh way. I've shared this um, example with you guys before, so you bear, it's for the new people. Remember the time the disciples are on the boat and the big storm comes? Now, they had already seen Jesus do miracles. They had already seen Jesus heal people. They had already seen Jesus uh, have power over demonic spirit, uh, spirits. But when that storm hits, they watch Jesus rebuke the storm. And, and all of a sudden, the typhoon goes away, right? The tempest on the sea, it's gone. And that says, and the Bible says they marveled. And they say, who is he who can even command the wind and the sea? Now, they already, they already had a relationship with Jesus. 
They already knew him. They already watched him do amazing things. But they were blown away by this new facet. They see him in this new light. But they'd only see him in that new light because of the storm. Right? Them being in that place of, oh no, of what now? Allow them to experience Jesus in a brand new way. And, and the same is true for your life and mine. We walk with Jesus and we know that he can, but sometimes there's this place where we come and we get to see and marvel at the goodness of God in a way that we, we hadn't before. And that's a good thing. That, that's, a, that's a form of God's grace in our life. And then he ends, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I, man, I, I, there's more I want to say. I'll just end here. This one verse reminds us this. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What does this remind us of? God is always in control. He is in control of all things. He is not pacing the halls of heaven, biting his nails, wondering what your monitor is going to assign you. He's not worried about the visa paperwork. He's not worried about the things that are happening with your kids or your marriage. God knows what he wants to do. Now, we can worry about those things. And sometimes we, our mind, you know, we can get sideways. And so that's where God says, nope. Think biblically, think rationally, bring it to me. Don't hit the panic button. Be mindful what's happening around you. The devil wants to use these things to distract you and discourage you. Don't let him, you resist him. And he dropped us into this thing called the church so that we can encourage and walk with each other. God is in control of all things. The life today and eternity come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Your word is so rich. We agree with it as it proclaims of itself that it's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like, it's like your version of a, of a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts away the stuff that's hardened in our heart. It makes us more sensitive to your voice and your leading and your calling, to your conviction and your encouragement. And Lord, as the worship team comes and as the ushers come forth to serve communion, I pray, God, as we transition into this time, as we worship in song, Lord, that we'll, although it be short, I pray it be really sincere, that we'll just give you our minds and our hearts in this moment to remind it of your love, that as we partake of the bread we know that it represents your body. Jesus, you said that your body was given for us. Lord, your word describes how you were crucified for us and that your blood poured out and the cup represents that for us. It's these elements as we Partake of them. It's the, the tasteable part, the tangible part of the gospel. That we get to remember how much you love us. All of your precious promises. Our identity in you. To stand in truth. To filter all of the lies that the world would throw at us. That's anti-God. That's anti-truth. And just, to, and just to be in that place, even for a few moments, Lord. That we acknowledge you, and we thank you, and we worship you. And so meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.